for the first time ever, there are large pharmaceutical companies who are interested in pursuing some sort of treatment for Huntington's disease. So that in itself is a really exciting prospect. Obviously, there are going to be failures along the way. That's what happens when you're in pioneering medicine and you're the first of anything. But there are so many different pharmaceutical companies looking at so many different mechanisms, whether that's gene silencing, whether it's splicing genes. That was Cass Stanley speaking about the tremendous amount of interest now being shown by pharmaceutical companies in developing drugs that will combat or potentially eradicate Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease will be our focus on this episode, episode number four of Healthcare on the Horizon. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. This podcast is intended for the general public and healthcare professionals. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. Our goal is to help you learn more about these diseases and to give you a clearer picture of the work being done right now to improve or eradicate their adverse impact. Like its sister podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, Healthcare on the Horizon will look a bit into the future, in this case, to provide hopeful news about the various diseases we shine a light on. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also, perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everyone. Today, you're going to learn about a disease that afflicts thousands of people around the globe, and many others are at risk of it. It's a progressive and sadly terminal disease caused by a genetic defect that alters the body's DNA and affects both the brain and the spine. I'm speaking about Huntington's disease. As you'll see, however, there are things happening in the world of science and medicine to try to alleviate, if not come up with a cure for Huntington's disease. In this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon, you'll learn about such things as when Huntington's disease was first discovered, how it presents itself, advances that have been made in helping delay the onset or progression of Huntington's disease, and some possible developments in terms of what may lie ahead in tackling this currently incurable disease. You'll also learn how to get help if you or someone you know has Huntington's disease, where to find out about the research taking place, and how you can get involved in helping organizations that are devoted to helping people live with Huntington's disease and hopefully finding a cure for it. To help us with all this, we've brought on an expert on Huntington's disease. She's Kath Stanley. Kath Stanley is Chief Executive for the Huntington's Disease Association of the United Kingdom. She provides strategic direction for the charity, whose main area of work is providing support to families affected by Huntington's disease and the professionals supporting them. 
The charity is a team of specialist Huntington's disease advisors who offer virtual and in-person support. The association runs a series of training events and webinars, and it provides dedicated support through its social media channels. Kath Stanley's background is in nursing, and her area of expertise was palliative care. She has qualifications in teaching and assessing Huntington's disease, cancer care, and bereavement counseling in children. Kath has had several papers published in a variety of aspects of Huntington's disease. She is also a trustee of the Neurological Alliance. Well, hi, Kath. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Thanks, Jeff. It's an absolute privilege to be here. I'm very excited about this, not because I think this is necessarily a pleasant topic to talk about, but because I want to learn more, and I'm sure our listeners do as well, Kath, about Huntington's disease and where we are with it and where we may be going with it in terms of prevention, treatment, diagnosis. I will tell you and tell the listeners that I first became aware of Huntington's disease back in the early 80s, I believe. Somebody who worked for a local chapter of the Huntington's Disease Association in the Philadelphia area, where I'm from, wanted me to speak at a meeting to her group about Medicare's coverage for services related to Huntington's disease. At that time, I was working for the United States' Medicare program. So that's when I first heard about Huntington's disease. So with that being an intro, can you please tell our listeners, Kath, a little bit about your educational background, your work experience, when you came to the Huntington's Disease Association and what you do there? Definitely. So my background is that I'm a nurse. I've worked for very many years in palliative care. I used to work in a Marie Curie hospice in the UK. And I first became aware of Huntington's really when we started as an organisation at Marie Curie taking some non-cancer patients. So we used to take two young people who, looking back, probably had had juvenile onset Huntington's disease, but were actually adults when they came to us. And they used to come in to us for respite care. And I think, I mean, this is going back some time, so NHS systems have changed since then. But the thing that really struck me was if I had a 20-year-old cancer patient that I was discharging back to the community, money was really no object. You could get as many services as you needed. But for these two young people with Huntington's disease, it was a battle to get them the support that they needed. And that felt to me very unfair. So when a role with the charity came up, I decided that I would apply for it because I felt that was an opportunity to make some sort of difference. And 20 years later, in a very different role as chief executive, I hope that we're still making a difference to those people with Huntington's disease. Well, I'm sure you are. And I see how you were touched by it with these patients way back when. You were involved with palliative care. I find that very interesting. Can you say just a few words about your involvement with palliative care, Kath? So I think to be involved with people at the last stages of their life is really, really important. I think it's a real privilege. And I think to be able to have them have what is a peaceful death, but more importantly for their family, for their their last memories to be pleasant memories, memories of being involved with their care or supporting them and as being able to support them is an absolute privilege as an individual and as a professional. Well, it's wonderful to hear that. And I really admire you 
for doing that, having done that, for what you're doing now. For people to be able to engage in professions like that, to me, they have to be special people. They have to be very compassionate, caring people. And again, I laud you for that. Now, going back to what you mentioned earlier, Kath, about how you first became introduced to Huntington's disease in a way, it involved young people. And so I think it would be a good time for you to tell us a little bit more about what Huntington's disease is when it was first identified and thinking about those young people, who and how many people it affects. You may not have perfect numbers for that, but just to give us an idea of that. So Huntington's disease is caused by a faulty gene, which basically alters somebody's DNA um, and it affects the nervous system. So it affects kind of brain and spine and that in turn affects people's kind of ability to ordinary body activities. It usually affects people between the ages of 30 and 50. That's kind of the usual age of onset. Although there is a very rare form of the illness called juvenile Huntington's disease where children and young people become symptomatic under the age of 21. That is very rare, but obviously for those families that it affects, it's completely devastating. So that's kind of the what Huntington's disease is in terms of how it affects people. Really, it's a slowly progressive but terminal illness. So it affects people's ability to move, it affects their movements, it affects their ability to think. So those things that we do automatically without having to think through that are just second nature to us, that is interrupted with them and to plan and those sorts of things. And it affects people's mood and behavior. And it can start off quite insipid, you know, people losing their temper or finding it difficult to learn new things or getting into difficulties at work because they're having to multitask until the later stages where people become generally quite poorly, they're unable to speak or swallow and and quite often are bed bounds as well. Okay. It reminds me a little bit, Kath, of ALS. Is it somewhat like ALS? It is, but I think the difference is probably the cognitive and behavioral elements of it. I think they're kind of far more profound in Huntington's disease and have really devastating effects on family life. Wow. When was it first identified? And then if you could tell us about how many people you think it affects. So it was identified many years ago by actually an American GP called George Huntington. And he had grown up in his father's GP practice and used to go around with his father on his pony and trap as a young boy and then became a GP himself. And he wrote a paper about Huntington's disease. And his observation was that that this was an illness that happened in a generation and could happen again in another generation, in the next generation. But then if it did that, it would continue through other generations. However, if it didn't, it would stop. So very little was known about genetics in those days, but actually that was his observation and that's still very accurate today. In terms of how many people are affected, I mean, we know that within the UK, there are about 8,000 people affected and about 32,000 people at risk for Huntington's disease. So because it is hereditary, every child born to an affected parent has a 50% chance of inheriting the gene. If they inherit the gene, they will go on and develop symptoms. Now that's in the UK. Can you expand on that, Kath, and maybe talk about other parts of the world, if there are any estimates, whether it be here in the United States or someplace else? Yeah. So in America, there are said to be 30,000 people. 
with the illness and 200,000 people at risk for developing the illness. It's difficult to give worldwide statistics because there's such differences in healthcare systems, in even the number of people being tested in different areas. And so it's quite difficult to give worldwide statistics. But in the more developed countries, such as ourselves in the States, they are the statistics that we use. Okay, just to go back to something else you said, Kath, you mentioned X number of people at risk. I assume you're talking about the people where there is a genetic tendency because one of their parents might have it or have had it? If you have a parent with Huntington's disease, every child that's born to that parent has a 50% risk of inheriting the gene. If they inherit the gene, they will go on and develop symptoms. And the risk is the same for each child that that parent has. Wow. So people who have a parent who has Huntington's disease or who had it know that they need to be mindful of this. Definitely aware of it. I mean, some people live their lives trying to forget about it. Other people choose to go and have a predictive test and find out whether or not they carry the gene. It really varies and it's very much an individual choice. Okay. Going back to the question about how many people it affects around the world, Kath, would you think or do you know, in fact, if there's any difference in terms of how it might affect people who are of different races, ethnic backgrounds? countries where they live? Is there anything known about that? Very little in reality. There is some thought that some ethnic backgrounds might be a protector against Huntington's disease, but I would say that there isn't really enough evidence to say that one way or the other. I think the one exception to that is probably Venezuela, which is actually where the gene for Huntington's was identified, where you have kind of whole populations basically who are affected by the illness, where the prevalence of Huntington's is much, much higher. Wow. Who would have thought that? One other question before we talk about where we are now, and then we'll get into the future in terms of prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of Huntington's disease. If I am somebody who is at risk in the way that you've defined it, I have a gene. Is there anything I can do or I just sit and kind of pray or ignore it, as you were saying? Is there anything I can do that might stave it off? So it won't prevent onset of symptoms forever, but there is definitely a lot of evidence that suggests a healthy lifestyle, keeping active, keeping your brain healthy, all of the things that we should do, reducing alcohol intake, all of those things. But there's definitely some evidence that suggests that activity and particularly kind of keeping your brain active can make the onset of symptoms later than otherwise. Isn't that fascinating? Because that applies to so many other things that we hear, Kat. Absolutely. Like staving off dementia. Yeah. It does remind me of what we're hearing in general about how important it is to keep the mind and the body active. And it all makes sense. Let's, mm. let's face it. If we move up to present day, can you speak about any recent or brand new developments in the prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of Huntington's disease? So in terms of the present day, not really. There is lots and lots of research we'll obviously go on to talk about. Sure. I think what we have got much better about is treatment for symptoms. So actually, certainly when I first started working for the charity, you know, there were very little medication even to treat things like the mental health symptoms or cognition or I think because we understand so much more about the illness, actually, we've got much better at using some of the medications that are out there for treatment of other things to actually can be helpful for the treatment of symptoms. 
Okay, so we're learning that there are certain drugs now that maybe can be used to help with the symptom. Yeah. Is that really where we're at right now? We'll get to the research. In terms of today, I have Huntington's disease or I might get it. You talked about the might get it as far as remaining active, especially mentally, but I now have it. So the best thing that we can do right now is to give people some drugs that might help with the symptoms. That and also some of the other things around, you know, keeping people active, keeping people, making sure that they're stimulated, making sure people have the right services around physiotherapy and occupational therapy and speech and language therapy. All of those things can make a real difference in terms of somebody's journey through the illness, support for families, social care support. You know, they're not drugs, they're not treatments, but actually they make a real difference to somebody's quality of life and the ability of a family to manage the disease. Excellent points. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, event hosting and meeting facilitation, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this, and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. Let me ask you a follow-up question about that, Kath. We're still right now in present day. What about diagnosis? Have we gotten any better diagnosing in recent times? Or if we pretty much figured out how to diagnose it 30 years ago, and that's kind of where we're at. So I think the diagnosis, the actual diagnosis is quite simple in terms of if somebody is displaying symptoms of Huntington's disease, you can do a blood test and that will show they have the gene. If they have the gene and they're displaying symptoms, it's fair to say that they have the disease at that point rather than just having the gene. I think where that becomes more complicated is where there are other illnesses that might be presenting in different ways with that individual. So it kind of muddies that picture a little bit or where there isn't an obvious clear family history of Huntington's disease, which can happen for all sorts of different reasons. But actually, if somebody's not aware of that family history, then the symptoms are quite the same as a lot of other neurological conditions. So if you're not aware of that family history, Huntington's disease is obviously quite rare. And so it might be something that is kind of looked into later down the line. But generally, where there's a family of history of Huntington's disease, the diagnosis is quite straightforward. That doesn't mean to minimize the devastating effect on the family. Oh, I'm sure. Are there blood tests that are done? Yes, that's right. So okay. basically, a blood test to show a gene. And sometimes people have an MRI scan or, or a CT scan to show any changes that may be taking place in the brain. Okay. 
There's something else I want to ask you. I forgot to ask you earlier. When we're talking about who it affects, does it tend to affect men and women equally or is it more focused on one gender than another? No, I think there is a myth out there that it affects men more than women, but actually that's not true. It's exactly the same for both men and women. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. What do you see lying ahead, Kath, in terms of the potential prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of Huntington's disease. I was able to watch a short video which talked about some promising things, and I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Definitely. I mean, I think it's for the first time ever, there are large pharmaceutical companies who are interested in pursuing some sort of treatment for Huntington's disease. So that in itself is a really exciting prospect. Obviously, there are going to be failures along the way. That's what happens when you're in pioneering medicine and you're the first of anything. But there are so many different pharmaceutical companies looking at so many different mechanisms, whether that's gene silencing, whether it's splicing genes. There's lots and lots of different elements to what people are looking for, what the pharma companies are researching. There is some realistic hope there, I feel, for some sort of treatment. What that treatment looks like, I think, is less certain. So I think probably in the first instance, what we will see is the development of something that may delay the progression of the illness or delay the onset of symptoms rather than a cure. I think the cure is probably further away, but all of those things take us a step closer towards that. And obviously, you know, if you can either delay onset of symptoms or slow progression of the illness, then that has a massive effect on somebody's quality of life. Yes. And I wanted to ask you a couple of follow-ups to that. First of all, I wanted to note that in looking at the video, I saw or heard proof of what you were saying. Companies like Roche, Wave Life Sciences and Novartis, or at least three involved with this. Why are the companies taking more of an interest, do you think now, Kath? I think it's about knowledge of the mechanism of the disease. So I think Roche, in a way, led the way in proving that in Huntington's disease, there's a faulty protein called Huntington, which is what causes a lot of the difficulties. Roche, in their original trial, proved that we could lower Huntington in the spine and in the brain. Now that that initial trial actually stopped and wasn't successful, but I think just that proof of concept is something that other companies have kind of got involved with and are working on different mechanisms, different ways, but it, you know it shows that it can be done. Do you see a breakthrough occurring within the 2020s, or do you think we're going to have to wait longer for some kind of a significant breakthrough in quality of life, staving off the symptoms for a while or mitigating the symptoms? What do you think, Kath? I think given the number of clinical trials that are taking place, then I think it would be realistic to assume, hope that one of those is going to find something that has some difference. Of course, there is then, that's only part of the picture. So even if that's found, then there is the prospect of kind of bringing that drug from a concept in a clinical trial to actually a drug that people can access. And I think, you know, that's something that we have to be very aware of and behind the scenes working towards with the regulatory authorities, making sure kind of other systems are system ready for should that happen. Yes, I know there's always the pipeline that they speak about the things coming to the market. A couple other quick questions about the future. Where does gene 
therapy, gene splicing? Where do they fit into this? Is that another pathway? They're all part of that picture, I think, in terms of looking at different mechanisms of slowing down, stopping the illness. So I think, you know, there are two very big contenders in what potentially could be treatments. Okay. I'd love for you to tell us at this point, Cass, a little bit more about what the Huntington's Disease Association does, how our listeners might be able to help you out. I'm thinking about volunteering, donating, because they sponsor events. Tell us about that, please. So our remit as an organization is to support families and professionals affected by Huntington's disease. We are a patient organization set up to support predominantly patients and families. But as a part of that, obviously, we support professionals as well. So we do that in a number of different ways. We have a team of specialist advisors who work out in the community. They visit people in their own homes. They attend clinics with them, just providing support. And really, the reason that that team came about was because although there are lots of professionals out there who support people with Huntington's disease because of the rarity of the illness. Actually, they know very little about it. So our link, if you like, is to provide them the information about Huntington's disease so that they can do their jobs. And we do a lot of education and training as well for all sorts of people from care homes to kind of specialist nurses, whoever wants that training. So that's a really key part of what we do. We also support people via kind of social media channels. So our social media channels are not only information, but they're also supportive channels where people can access anonymous support. You know, some of the younger generation don't want to be identified as being at risk of Huntington's disease. So they can kind of contact us via Facebook Messenger and, and kind of get the information they want without actually kind of giving any information about who they are, which is crucially important. And then we also provide a series of webinars, both for patients and families, but also for professionals as well. And we have a wealth of information on our website. So really, our remit is to support people with Huntington's disease wherever they are and at whatever stage of the illness. And that might be working with that individual themselves. It might be working with the family. It might be working with the professionals around them. But ultimately, what we want to do is improve their quality of life. It sounds wonderful. What about volunteering, donating, sponsoring events that you have. Speak to that, please. Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, we have a network of local branches and support groups who are there to kind of support people in the local community. They're all volunteers. And so that's a really important part of what we do. And then I think one of the really lovely things about working for an organization where it's a genetic condition, actually the community that we support the most incredible support to us. So they, their fundraising and their, their kind of madcap ideas of what they do to raise funds for us really make massive difference. So that's definitely something that people can sign up to do. We have different challenges, which you can see on our website. They actually really do make a difference to us being able to deliver support to patients and families. Are there chapters all over the world or where are the chapters? If there are chapters. Yeah, so are, we call them branches and support groups. I know in the States that they're called chapters and I think they are in Canada as well. So yes, most of the lay organizations do have those kind of more local support groups. But the lay organizations vary very much in t- terms of size and how they're running things. Okay. And then how about the research? Before we tell people how to find you, is there anybody who's donating to support research for Huntington's disease or is there nothing that specific? 
Yeah, no, I mean, we take donations for research. We do fund some research projects and we kind of supply into some of the clinical research trials that are happening. So that's something that we do as well. Okay, that's great to know. Now, after having given us all this great information, some of us won't remember it all. (laughs) I'm not speaking about anybody personally, of course, here. Where can we go to find out more about the Huntington's Disease Association and about Huntington's disease and maybe even about some of those chapters or groups that are around the world? All of that information is on our website, which is www.hda.org.uk. So all of the information about the services that we provide, information about Huntington's disease, information about our kind of support groups are there, but also there are links there to some of the international organizations as well. Well, that is fantastic. Kath, I really appreciate your taking the time to share this very important information with our listeners. I've learned a lot. I'll learn even more when I listen to it again. That's what often happens to me. And people can listen to this as often as they'd like. And I commend you again for what you're doing, for what the association is doing. I know it's a very difficult disease to have, to put it mildly. I'm sure it is very difficult for the family members, the caregivers. So again, my thanks to you for being on the show and more importantly, for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address jeff at jeff-ostroff.com Thanks!